so many times negative emotion is coming from some place of helplessness or shame inside of us right the shame coming from trauma and then we want to hold someone responsible and sometimes it is aggression outward but sometimes the person we're angry at and hold responsible is ourselves and there's the negative self-talk right and there's the way that we beat up on ourselves and we right. inadvertently then just perpetuate our own trauma and like we don't have to do that and we can change that and we can change that like, right now Hello everyone, I'm Dr. David Perlmutter, and welcome again to The Empowering Neurologist. You know, we all have trauma in our lives, and it's important to recognize that trauma affects the platform that we use to see the world moving forward. Traumatic events color how we see new events that happen thereafter, and unfortunately, early life trauma, or really trauma occurring at any point in our lifetimes, doesn't seem to be addressed as it should be, especially when we consider the fact that traumatic experiences can have bona fide physical manifestations. Uh, they can affect our longevity. Uh, they can affect our biological aging, our immune function. And really, my point is that they really need to be addressed. We really need to pay attention to trauma and do our very best to unravel trauma in terms of contextualizing it how it's influencing each and every one of us day by day. And this is the focus of a new book that we are going to be looking at today called Trauma, The Invisible Epidemic by Dr. Paul Conti. Let me tell you a little bit more about Dr. Conti. Uh, Dr. Paul Conti, MD, is a graduate of Stanford University School of Medicine, and he then completed his psychiatry training both at Stanford as well as at Harvard. He then served on the medical faculty at Harvard before moving to Portland, Oregon, and founding a clinic. He serves patients and clients throughout the United States and internationally, including the executive leadership of very large corporations. And again, the new book that we're going to be talking about today is Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic, How Trauma Works and How We Can Heal From It, with a very interesting introduction by Lady Gaga. So I think you're going to uh, really enjoy and find quite helpful our time together today. Let's get right to our interview. Dr. Paul Conti, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. I appreciate you having me on. And I, I was telling before we went on that uh, how much I enjoyed your book and um, you. God, how lucky I am that, you know, cool guys like you writing such amazing books they, that you. I get the opportunity to read them. So thank you for that. And I'd like to jump right in. I talked about it in the introduction um, about the importance of trauma, the, how trauma is so unrecognized. Mm -hmm. And even if it is recognized, how people don't want to talk about it. But what was the interest for you? How did you get into this whole area and why did you think it was so important? Yeah. You know, I just started seeing over and over in the work that I was doing that, that trauma was, was really foundational, you know, that it was undergirding all of the things or almost all of the things that I was trying to treat. And, and, you know, there's not a lot of commonality amongst all the different things one might be, be treating as a psychiatrist, right? But to see that undergirding depression, undergirding anxiety, panic attacks, uh, uh, obsessive compulsive disorder, right? And, and a lot of just the general angst, right? That, that runs through our lives that, that people come to care for was trauma. That if you trace those roots back, right? If you talk to people in a therapeutic process or even in a just data gathering process, right? That what you, you would learn 
learn is the roots of those problems reside in trauma and, and they grow different branches and they, you know, so they looks different in different people, but, but ultimately if we're really going to go to, to the root of the problem and try and enact something that's, that's really makes a huge difference and can be curative that we just have to look at trauma and seeing it over and over again, and then seeing how little it was being recognized, right. As the root cause of depression or addiction, for example, uh, really, you know, led me to just focus on like, there's something here that needs to be, written about, talked about, like there's something so germane to, to the helping profession that I'm trying to do as best I can that, that I've, I've got to think about that, write about that, like get, get the message of it out there. Well, I mean, the, the whole idea um, of what's undergirding, to use your word, uh, is certainly familiar to all of our viewers of, the, of this podcast that, you know, as I've said so many times, it, it's so important to focus not just on the smoke, but on the fire. And as it relates to right. Uh, psychiatric issues that we as professionals deal with, so much is uh, really just dealing with symptomatology. So much is yes. just targeting, yes. you know, the, these therapeutic options of perhaps increasing the availability of serotonin or giving people right. uh, medicines to calm them down. And how refreshing it is that you put out a book now that's saying, you know, that's all well and good, but what's going on in the background? Where, why did we get to this place? And you make it very clear early on in the book that that is really under-recognized and the value yes. of it is under-recognized. Yes. Well, why is mainstream medicine, certainly mainstream psychiatry, so reluctant to really want to explore how fundamental trauma is in all the manifestations that you just described? Well, I think we, we live in a world of quick fixes, right? We live in a world of, well, soothe symptoms and then we'll call it good. Right. And certainly medical care is that way. I mean, we have a medical system that's very good at doing acute, complex things. Right. But we're not good at prevention. Right? We're not looking at the bigger picture that requires time intensive, human intensive work over over time. Right. And instead, again, you know, I use this analogy a lot that we want to sort of polish the hood when there's a problem in the engine and then kind of call it good. Right. Because oh, I'm, I'm going to take that from you. I'm going to steal that. But go ahead. You'll hear that from yeah. me in the future. That's for sure. Great. Great. <laughs> I mean, that, that's and that's what I would feel, though, so often like I would feel like, oh, this this person has been through like a lot of treatment. Right. And and like all it's done is polish the hood you know, over and over again. And, and you know, nothing got to the roots, right? And, and like th this person's problems continue and their, you know, their, their life dysfunction continues, sometimes even threatening their life, right? But, but certainly decreasing health and happiness for the person and the people around them. And, you know, the systems want to look at, well, what's the next thing we can do? We, we increase the medicine, we make there be more serotonin available here or there. And as you said, it's all well and good, but it's all well and good if, if it's seated in an attempt to actually understand what's going on. Otherwise, I think it actually does harm, right? Because, you know, people know when you're just polishing the hood, you make a little more serotonin available with this medicine, or you do something with that medicine, or give a sleep medicine, and now they sleep better for a little bit before the system overcomes that too. And and I think that there can be a real sense of hopelessness and a sense of despair. And And where does that go? Through the lens of trauma, then the person blames themselves for not getting better. Right. So I think we have a healthcare system and a mental health care system that by and large is failing us. 
right? So it's failing individual people who then internalize that the failure is their fault. And I think the systems often promote that, right? If, well, if you're not getting better with what we've decided for you, then you failed this or you failed that, right? I mean, we actually use those words, right? What, so, and words that you use in the book, I think, many times was uh, really related to the, the fact that shame is sort of the running yeah. partner of of trauma that it felt because you failed you you're feeling shameful right. and how you know valuable that is to when we finally contextualize where this shame is coming from and can call right. it out for what it is and identify its etiology then we're in a as you called it a more of a movable place where uh things right. can now s start to shift i think in the ford by lady gaga there's a the description that you you told her it would take six months or it did take six months Till you finally character characterized her underlying um, manifestations of trauma to be as the right. word was movable. Yes, yes, that's right. And again, that is the opposite of the message that that American medicine and medical care often wants to give, mm. right? Which is, look, look, we're talking about your problems. Just you sh shift your thoughts a little bit. Think about this and not that, right? And go do take this and not that. And take a couple of these medicines and, and like, we're going to call it good, right? right? Yeah. Be a good patient. How and if you go not, after 15 minutes. Right, right. And, right. and if not, then you should feel ashamed of failing the treatment for your shame. Right. And, and like, w what harm are we doing with that? When I think there's just common sense here that says well, we need to look at the root of problems. Right. And again, that root very, very often goes back to trauma and it is very addressable. Right. And that's, you know, the, 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 the intent of the book was, is to be very, very practical. Right. It's, it's not to, it's meant to be esoteric and, oh, we can understand some things, but like, we don't know how to apply that knowledge. Right. It's actually, it's the opposite. Right. It's saying that, that the truth here is consistent with simplicity and it's, it's straightforward of like, how about we look at what is actually ailing someone. Right. And then we, we try and enlist in a collaborative way. Right. The, the, the person, right. To, to come along with whoever's trying to treat and help them to actually solve the problem. Right. So as you mentioned in the forward of the book, like ex being able to explain that to Stephanie, that it's just, it wasn't going to be like, it's, it's nothing we just talk about now. Like we have the answer to it. Like we have to think about it. Right. And we have to have to be a back and forth. It's an understanding process in you and in me. And sure, we can treat symptoms along the way. But what we're really looking for is understanding. And and like it requires time and effort and it has to evolve over time. And when you say that to someone in a way that says, look, I can do that with you. Right. And like we can we can do it. It gives them hope. Right. It's not despairing to learn that, oh, it's going to take some months to get our arms around this. I mean, that's a good message when the alternative is what the person's desperation and despair that, that that like nothing is getting better. Right. And that's a desperation and despair that I've felt myself in my own life. And and when we feel that as humans, we, we want we want an explanation. We want an understanding. and We want a pathway. And if we're given something that just sounds like, oh, just polish the hood and you'll be fine, like it doesn't go well, right? And we kind of know that. Well, you, you've said a lot just now that, I, and I, I want to uh, recap just a little bit because I think you're making it very clear that it, it isn't necessarily easy to do the work, that, uh, you know, the easy way out is to take the, you know, the Lexapro and be done with it and hope for the best. But again, as mentioned, you know, you're, you're treating symptoms and really 
avoiding, you're doing everything you can to avoid confronting what may well be the underlying issue or issues here. And that it isn't, right. as, as you said, in, uh, as is said in the forward, six months to, to even get to a place of being movable. That it, it's going to take some work. But right. from your description, uh, you know, ultimately, it's absolutely worth it. Because now you are clearly putting the fire out. You've identified the problem right. and can contextualize it. And I think you know the value of your book right. is it's giving people two things. It's giving them hope and it's giving them tools. Uh, yes. And this Thank isn't you. Yes. what you get uh, in the 15-minute interaction in a doctor's office where you end up walking out with a prescription. Right. Absolutely. It's, it's a, it's a mechanism of, of deceit, right? That, that, you know, we can do this with ourselves as human beings. I mean, how many people who say want to lose weight, you know, buy the diet book and hope for the best, right? And then that's like, take the Lexapro and hope for the best, but, but it's a false hope, right? And, and we often know that like on the patient side of things, like we, we, we will sense the falseness of it, right? And that even in buying into it, we're, we, we're buying into something that's false. Right. And, and, you know, great, good things don't come for nothing. Right. Like getting the diet book doesn't make a person lose weight. Right. It's the attention to to like, what is the diet? You know, what is the person actually eating? Right. How are they exercising? Like it's the bigger things that take effort. Right. That actually make our lives better. And we, we've developed this short sighted view, which I think is not just an American view, but but we, we want what we want when we want it. And that need for immediate gratification or wish for immediate gratification without the investment of time and effort, you know, means that we end up all deceiving ourselves, right? And, and what's so bad about the message that it requires time and effort and work, but things can be so much better. Like, I think that's a wonderful message and it's a wonderful economic message. I mean, if you think about so much of this is done through the lens of, of cost containment, right? Well, you might say, okay, you look at just the cost. There's just 15 minute appointments and Lexapro's inexpensive, right? It seems like that's a lower cost, but, but we're, we're not taking into account what about the human cost, right? Of, of suicides that could have been prevented, right? Depression that takes away from enjoyment and productivity, right? And what about the emergency room visits, right? The other medical health problems, right? That, that get so much worse in the context of mental health problems, right? If we actually look at the big picture, even if we just think about dollars and cents and we factor out, let's say we're not thinking about the human beings, which of course isn't right to do, but if we just look at it from that perspective, taking the longer term view of it is better, but we're so lost in the short term that even our methods of accounting, what makes sense and what doesn't make sense is like we're just looking to the end of, you know, we cannot see beyond the end of our noses. You know, it's very interesting because we've, you and I have come to a, a very similar place uh, on different paths, different roads that lead to Rome. In my world of yeah. neurodegenerative conditions, again, it's mm -hmm. live your life come what may. Don't address your blood sugar. Don't address your inactivity, your sleep disorder. And when you become cognitively impaired, well, we will have a drug for that, whether it's Aricept right. or some new monoclonal antibody that's going to get rid of uh, right. beta amyloid. And what we know right. is that they don't work. And yet, right. if we address the underlying issues, the inflammation, the insulin resistance, the glucose dysregulation, et cetera, yes. we yes. can really you know, address the, the mechanisms that are involved in the brain yes. degeneration. And I think it's clear that you're saying the exact same thing, that you know, this uh, trauma experiences are, they manifest, ultimately they come to the surface as the things that then have these ICD code for which you can prescribe a, a specific medicine and be done with with uh, with treatment, you you 
draw some similarities between trauma and two things, uh, viruses, the way viruses spread through society, and also sort of the um, unrecognized dangers of air pollution. Let's start with vi the viral analogy. How does that work? Yeah. Well, the trauma is in so many of us. And if, if we don't know it and we don't recognize it, then, then we pass that trauma on. Right. So even from the perspective of if I'm suffering from trauma and I, I'm not doing a good job taking care of myself, say, and I'm depressed, right? Then I, I won't be as good. I'll pass some of that along, say, to my children, right? Because I, I won't be as good a parent, right? And, and so it can come in those sort of indirect ways, or there's sort of the repetition compulsion sometimes gets called that in trauma, where in trying to solve the trauma, where we present ourselves or put ourselves in the same difficult or dangerous situations where the trauma arose. And we can repeat patterns like, you know, choosing unhealthy jobs or choosing unhealthy romantic partners, you know, for, for example, that we tend to sort of pass this along in a way that makes our own trauma worse and, and often has then an effect on the people around us, including sometimes trauma makes people externalize, right? So, so there's anger and aggression. And I think a lot of what we see, I think, in our, in our modern political landscape is really just the discharge of, of anger and aggression, right? I mean, it's not really about, oh, like two people are having a dialogue and trying to come to some understanding, right? Or even some uh, arrival at what's fact versus what's opinion, right? So much of the mm -hmm. dialogue is just like, I'm mad, I'm angry, and I want, and I, and I want others to feel my aggression, Right. And, and I don't care if one plus one is two. If you say it's three, I'm going to argue with you about it. Right. Because because th there's there's so much anger and frustration that we see over the, the socioeconomic situation in the country and the erosion of faith in 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 the socioeconomic foundation as 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 a way that people can work hard and get themselves ahead. Right. And support a family I and mean, entire industries. People can't do that in anymore. Right. And then you, you think about systemic racism, you think about the political discourse and people feeling helpless and just wanting to assert themselves. And and there's like there's a real danger of that is that we pass along the trauma because we're angry and we're upset and we don't know why. And we run the risk of the destruction of our society. So I, I don't think that's an overstatement. I think that if we're not looking at what's going on in ourselves and what's driving our choices and behaviors and opinions, right, then often we're just projecting out our frustrations. So in direct and indirect ways, we're passing trauma along back and forth and, and we don't see it like a virus. We don't see it going from one of us to another and back. Well, you know, you, you did talk quite a bit in the book, not quite a bit, but mentioned several times how uh, trauma influences people to be bullies and yes. how that's their, you know, ex, uh, their manifestation then of dealing with or the effects of that trauma in that individual. And, you know, when we think of bullies, we think of you know, kids on, in the, uh, you know, uh, out in the, the playing field yes. uh, in fifth grade. But, you know, reality is we're seeing that certainly uh, in the media, in adults uh, playing out today, uh, that there's an awful lot of bullying going on. It's nothing that uh, that is just confined to children. And again, you know, to, to use your description in the book, this is a manifestation of what did or didn't happen earlier in life. And, you know, it's a call. It's a call for, uh, you know, trying to unravel those events earlier in life. Yeah, earlier in life and also right now. Right. Because you need to go, why? Like, right. When I think I hear the word bully, there was a time I would think of like a kid on the middle school playground. Right. right? Now I don't. I think of adults like you and me. 
right? Who, who want to have their way. But I then think of the very frightening fact that it's not even linked to an outcome, right? It's just, just, I want to have my way, right? I want to assert myself. I want to feel powerful. Right. Because I feel, I feel weak. I feel unappreciated. I, I, I don't see prospects of making life better. And then people just want to assert themselves. Right. So the, the you know, the bullying isn't, isn't about the outcome. Right. It's about the act of the bullying as a reaction against impotence. Right. Against feeling weak and feeling incapable and, and not validated. Like, right. Not and not validated. Right. And, and what are the roots of that? Right. The roots of that are trauma are in trauma, just like I think you were talking about the neurodegenerative conditions, right, that you're, that you're fighting against, right, and, and looking at like, how are people taking care of themselves? What are they investing in themselves? And a lot of that difficulty in people taking care of themselves also comes through trauma, a sense of hopelessness, a sense that I can't really control my fate anyway. And then isn't it easy to believe in the lie that, oh, if I get, you know, Alzheimer's disease later on, and part of that is I didn't take care of myself and I could have, there'll be a pill for it. I mean, it's easy to buy into that lie if we don't feel like, if we feel like we can't do anything to change it now. If we right? don't have but, agency. But be, right. Being, having a sense of agency and empowerment to, to guide our lives forward changes all those equations. And in many ways, I think the things that you're advocating for on this, the neurological front and I'm advocating for on the psychiatric front, they're, they're hugely intertwined, right? And they're about a sense of agency and a sense of empowerment, as opposed to a sense of hopelessness, which then leads to wishful thinking. That Lexapro is going to solve the problems of, of, you know, there's, I'm, I'm being, uh, I'm suffering from violence in the home, right? But, but the Lexapro will make it better, right? <laughs> or, you know, I'm not taking care of myself. My glucose is high. I won't have any problems later on. Like, you know, that, that's, it's a fiction, but it's easy to buy into that fiction if a person feels helpless. And our helping systems often leave people feeling more helpless than when they came in to the helping systems. Well, the glasses are going on, and that can only mean one thing, that it's time to read it. <laughs> An interesting quote out of the book, uh, from Stephanie Zu Gutenberg, uh, Gutenberg, who um, is you know kind of a, a world recognized advocate for children, yes. and uh, you know about a third of the way through the book, you divert to uh, interview her, ask her some questions, yes. and one of the responses I think is really uh, very meaningful because it kind of summarizes so much about what the book is about. And I'm going to actually read it. Yes, and yet. There's still this common idea that trauma is something discreet or limited to the time when the event happened. It's almost as if we can only see it through a legal lens, like something bad happened at some point in the past where the trauma is sort of contained. But especially when it comes to children, trauma isn't like that at all. It affects everything else in life going forward. Yes. What we don't get is that people are fundamentally changed by trauma. They're changed biologically. We're going to talk about that. They're changed in terms of gene expression and hormones and chemicals and neurotransmission. And that goes on forever. My hope is that people's notions of trauma catch up with the scientific research. So there's a lot that uh, is uh, that we can unpack there. But, you know, the notion that trauma then is uh, has manifestations in terms of our immune system, in terms of inflammation, in terms of uh, autoimmunity, yeah. uh, in terms of gene expression, that right. trauma, we've, we've seen this in, in laboratory rodents, that trauma affects gene expression in that generation, but that that 
gene expression can be passed on to the progeny of the traumatized right. parent. That's amazing, right? It, it is. It is amazing. But um, you know, that said, one of the things that we know trauma does, we've known that uh, people with post-traumatic uh, PTSD, and then we, you, you sort of use, you know, we kind, you kind of clarified that term for us in, in a certain context in the book. We'll talk about that. But that people who have been diagnosed with that have a dramatic increased risk for senile dementia of the Alzheimer's type, uh, possibly because of a couple of things, that their baseline cortisol levels are elevated, damaging the, yes. the uh, hippocampus, number one. But number two, their levels of inflammation are higher. And yes. interestingly, what we just wrote about in our last book was the role of inflammation in disconnecting people from the uh, top-down control of the prefrontal yes. cortex, the adult in the room, the non-bullying part of the brain, yeah. uh, the role that it plays in, in reining in the bullying part, the non-empathetic, the self-centered, uh, the non-future-looking part of the brain. And, and what we see with inflammation is that that's how people then become. They become those you know, they, they manifest their trauma quite without any restraint whatsoever. And, yes. you know, your commentary both now and in the book about what's going on in society, I think when we think about those mechanisms, it, it all becomes pretty clear. The question then becomes, <laughs> what, do, what do we do? What's our, what, what's our fallback now? What can we do? Well, look, I, I think we can use our understanding to actually address it. I mean, if you think about like, what we're saying here, and, and it's not just that like we're saying it, I mean, we're saying it because the data is there, right? That, that tells us there's an immense problem here, right? That, that trauma doesn't go away on its own, right? It's not like a bruise. Well, give it time and it will heal. Like it doesn't, it stays inside of us and it drives dysfunction as if that trauma is still with us in every moment, right? And then our brains and our bodies are in survival mode, right? And survival mode, for example, it is a high inflammation state, right? It is a state that's, that's looking for threat, right? It's, it's a state that is about like, let's shift everything towards surviving, right? Which again, makes sense if we're under direct survival threat, right? But if we carry that forward when we're not under direct survival threat, now we have high levels of inflammation, right, that are carrying on over years and years and years and promoting cardiovascular disease. So promoting dementia, promoting uh, heart attacks, promoting strokes, right? And that goes on over years and years and it changes our mental state in a way that we forget that there was a way that we functioned and existed before that, right? So then we perpetuate that because our perspective is changed, right? We see new people not as like, oh, you're interesting to me. Let me, let me, let me learn something about you. But we just see, are you a threat to me? right? Which can raise our own defensiveness and our own aggression. It changes the entire lens through which we see ourselves and the world. And, and you can see how if we let that build upon itself and build upon itself and get projected out into the world and bounce from one of us to another, right? How we can really lose our grounding to even to a civil society that's functioning and that has mechanisms of, of, of helping us at all, right? You can see how we can lose that. Oh, and we know as, as you so we can pass it along to generations to come, right? Like, like to me, I don't know what's a greater call for urgency, 
right? And and the fact that it has like solutions, right? Of like, let's go and look at that. What are the roots of the trauma? Can we help people reorient to who they actually are, which would be who they were before trauma, right? Like, why can't that be who we still are, right? And it can be unless the trauma has run away with us and we don't realize that there's any different. And, and I don't know what, what better, what better purpose can there be for mental health helping mechanisms than helping people realize that? Then what, what dysfunction will we decrease in the world, right? Outside of us and also inside of ourselves. So it is amazing, but it's also simple, right? There's also a simple common sense aspect. And I think when something is amazing in the breadth and depth of its impact, but also like simple and common sense in its route of approach, then that's where I, I feel the, the urgency to say like, well, we need to shift how we're looking at this and what we're doing, right? Because because all the data tells us that's exactly what we should be doing and that the way that we're doing it isn't helping us. And in fact, it's not only not helping us, but on balance, it's likely hurting us. It's a, it's a fundamental conversation, isn't it? I mean, you know, here you are mentioning that uh, and we, and we really need to embrace the the transgenerational implications of of what we're, of what's going on with respect yes. to, to trauma and we know when when you look at the you know, the lack of attention to the cli to climate change for example which is a future generational consideration right. you don't have to go any further than than, than to, to recognize then that it seems that there is a a lack of uh, of empathy with respect to not only uh, each of us today, but certainly future generations. The other thing you mentioned was yes. this notion of tra trauma related to survival. And that, uh, you know, there was a discussion in the book about your uncle Rango. Yes. And uh, boy, that was a, a it was a tough uh, situation that he lived lifelong with a uh, a very, very heavy trauma hanging over him but the event was a survival event. Why don't we talk about that and then talk about how that played out and maybe what could have been done for him? Yeah. I mean, the reason that he was able to live and live a good life with that trauma is because he, he understood it, right? And, and he understood that it wasn't him who, who chose, who put himself in that situation, right? He was in a situation no one should have to be in. Right. And he made the decisions that he made in the, in the service of a higher good, right? His moral and ethical grounding to taking care of the people who were under his command, right? They were his charge and he needed to take care of them and shepherd them forward. And, and that responsibility, which was clear mm. and good to him, and he had accepted it and sworn an oath upon it, and he was going to carry it out. And if it meant doing something terrible, right, then he could shoulder that burden because he saw the meaning in it. And, and, you know, th that's, that's, that's like, that makes all the difference, right? And, and to see, even if, if, if we're suffering from trauma and we don't see, see, say the meaning in it, right, in a way that he saw the meaning of what he has had done for a higher good, that we, at least we see that we are not responsible, right? That we don't deserve shame for being 
traumatized, right? And that what is our responsibility is to make our lives as good as they can be, right? It's, it takes a sense of agency back to us. And, and I think my, my uncle Rango retained a sense of agency and a sense of empowerment through his trauma. And it's that sense of agency and empowerment that we need to give to the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of people who are traumatized and have lost that sense of empowerment, lost that sense of agency, hence the pervasive anxiety, right? Hiding oneself from the world and you know, depression and sleep disturbance, right? It's that meaning that, that has to be restored. And we have the helping mechanisms to do it. We just often don't do it because in very limited therapy sessions, long periods of time to access and throwing one medicine after the next at people, there's like the helping system doesn't even try and do it. And then we, we don't get back agency and empowerment and a sense of meaning. So I'll leave it to the reader to, uh, you know, to fully explore what, what your uncle went through. But, you know, it, it was, uh, it, it seems that that incredibly awful experience and decision that he had to make, you know, ultimately he recognized that for the greater good, that's what he needed to do and, and worked with it. And, you know, I think it was, it was actually yeah. a, a very empowering example for those of us who, you know, would maybe have not have been able to do what he did, or if we did, how that might affect them moving forward. I and mean, we, we all, you know, know of people who've had to do certain things and yet couldn't work their way through it. You, you talk yeah. about um, that there are direct effects of trauma on the limbic system. And I wonder if you couldn't just uh, open up a little bit about the limbic system, why it's important. And then what are some of those lasting changes that are imparted on this limbic system uh, from traumatic events? Sure. The limbic system, which we could also describe as like the emotion system in us, right, is, is really the system that generates meaning inside of us. It's not facts that have meaning. It's the emotion that we relate to them, right? Like I can think of the fact of my daughter and her name, but what makes significance is that I map the emotion, right? I map the love and the care that I feel, right? And then that makes the meaning inside of me. And, and the limbic system will shift towards a beleaguered place, which can, which can be a place of defensiveness, of fear, of anxiety, of aggression. It can be all those negative things that start, sh they start coming to the forefront when we are traumatized, right? Hence, like really good studies that have looked at people who've been through trauma. And if they see like a new face, a new person coming towards them, they, they have a very different response than interest and curiosity, right? They have a response that's coming through the limbic system's bias towards threat, right? To feeling beleaguered, right? So feeling, so just worried, are you a threat to me or not, right? Because the limbic system now is, is, is so interested in preventing further trauma, but it doesn't actually know how to do that, right? It's just amped up and it's looking for threat all over the place, and which is why we end up in higher inflammation states inside of us, right? It's like a state of red alert when there's no red alert. And look, when we're in a state of red alert, we miss other information, right? I mean, if the fire alarm goes off in one of the places you and I are at, like, we'll pay attention to that, right? You know, we, we won't pay attention to the last thing one of us said, or right, like, we, we'll miss information because there's something urgent going on, right? But if the limbic system is telling us there's something urgent going on all the time, we miss a lot of information. And then how does that change our decisions? You know, we're, you know, now we feel threatened all the time, and it's going to change our mood, our anxiety, our sleep, our behaviors, right? So, and it also changes the emotion that gets linked to our memories, 
right? And I think that's among the most frightening aspects of trauma is, is like seeing people or working with people and knowing people in my life, like before and after trauma and, and how our memories are changed, where the person will link emotion that is negative to a memory that had good emotion, right? It's the example of a, a high school award that made the person feel good about themselves and like they were capable and could navigate the world. You know, a person's reflection on that after, say, being traumatized, um, you know, maybe in a relationship or occupationally having disappointments, maybe disappointments based on prejudices or whatever the case may be, then the person looks back on the memory, say, of that high school award and sees something to be ashamed of. Well, people gave me things for nothing. And, you know, it just, it just showed I was, I was going to have this hanging over my head and never make anything of myself. Like, like that's not what the person felt then. You know, they felt hope and they felt confidence. They felt a sense of agency. But trauma changes that through because the emotion now is is all coming through this lens of feeling threatened and beleaguered. And it changes our memories then because it changes the emotion that make our memories real and alive inside of us. So trauma makes us feel threatened and 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 actually being threatened is traumatic. And I, I say that because I think in our modern world, when I say modern, I mean in the past year and a half or so with COVID, uh, I think people are feeling threatened. I think yes. you know, everything that, yes. you know, the paradigm has changed. The playing field is so different and that's mm -hmm. very disruptive and threatening to people. So it really represents a bit of a global trauma. And, yes. you know, I I'm interested to know what your thoughts are on how, with understanding how, you know, what the manifestations of trauma may be, What's going to be through the lens of trauma, the, the manifestation of what appears to be this ongoing event? Yeah, I think unless we do something to course correct it, I, I think the answers to that are going to be all very negative, right? That, that the people being behind closed doors has increased all sorts of problems in us, right? The isolation, right? Increases the ruminative negative thoughts in people, right? It, it promotes depression, right? The isolation from others, or if there are difficulties behind closed doors, right? right? Whether it's emotional abuse, physical abuse, substance abuse, right? Like these are things that tend to play out more behind closed doors. And there's a weight of all of these things on us as a society. Right. And then being more cl uh, behind closed doors, people then reach out through the computer, right? Through the mechanisms we have of communicating and connecting. And like, like anything else that's so broad in its applicability, that could be used for good or for bad. Right. And, and a lot of the social media mechanisms and the, the, the media mechanisms in general appeal to the lowest common denominator. Right. They appeal to, to just connect with others who are angry the way that you are. Right. You know, the, mm. the, there's a detachment then that, that often the way that ways that people are seeking communication and connection get narrowed down to, to, to coming through the lens of trauma, right? Through those, I'm angry and I'm frustrated. And I'm going to connect with people who are angry and frustrated like me. Oh, and then we're all mad at that. We're all mad at those people, right? And then we end up compartmentalizing, right? And the problems inside of us get more and more sealed inside of us. And then they spin and they get worse. And whatever it is that's, that's it's fueling in us, depression, anxiety, aggression gets worse. And we're going to have to step away from the, I mean, there's a theme here to what we're talking about, right? Which is like the quick fix isn't the answer right? The diet book isn't the answer, right? The Lexapro often is not the answer, right? And the, the answer to this is in building social bridges again, building communication again, building building dynamics and role modeling that like, you know, guess what? You and I can disagree about something and not immediately go to like each of us has to think the other's a terrible person, 
right? Maybe we mm. disagree and have a dialogue. And you know what? Gosh, you told me things I didn't know. And like, I have to rethink my opinion. You know, I'm like, why don't we do that anymore? Right? We don't see that modeled in front of us. Right. And like, we're in trouble if we don't do this ourselves and, and role model this for the generations that are coming up behind us. I, I'm smiling because I, I did a podcast uh, several years ago with a Dr. John Dewyard who was all in thinking that gluten is a good thing in our diets. I happen to disagree with him. We were on for over an hour and a half and we were talking about the science about gluten and what it does in the body. And he was countering my, my science with other science and it was respectful. And we ended on a wonderful up note and, and the comments, and we had hundreds and hundreds of comments on it had nothing to do with gluten, good or bad. It was, that was amazing. You guys right. actually had a respectful conversation. I mean, right. you don't see that. You just do not see that in our world. We are so hyper-polarized. Uh, right. um, I, I wanted it's to amazing. tell you that as, as I was reading your book, um, I, I dared to confront a very traumatic uh, event in my life. Oh. And I realized... Um, immediately how close to the surface it really was and is as you can see right now, as yes, I, I think tell. my demeanor has changed, yes. I, I can't hide that, but, yes. um, I, and I guess that would be an indication that it really hasn't been framed. It hasn't been contextual. It hasn't been dealt with appropriately because I think it still nuances my emotions and responses to things that may be connected to it much as I think there was a city that had a name similar to pancreas or pancrea that you talked uh -huh. about, and it it, it conjured uh, it related to an uh, experience one of your relatives, I think your aunt or somebody that had pancreas or not sure my mother, was it your mother? Yeah, my mother had died of pancreatic cancer. Pancreatic and the pancreatic, similarity you of visited the words. a city that yeah. was pancrea or something, and was how it? that kindled that uh, emotionality. But uh, you know, I hadn't hadn't. Um, confronted or dealt with um, that event until I, I decided to, uh, you know, reading your book. I, knew, wow. I know full well that it has affected me. And, uh, and I think for me moving forward, I, I have to deal with that. I think I have to work with that a little bit. Yes. So, uh, and I think you've got great tools in your book. I mean, you, you end you. the book talking about knowledge, power, healing, hope, and urgency, urgency. Yes. And, uh, I think the knowledge part, correct me if I'm wrong, is really understanding how, how pervasive, indelible right. to some degree, but how influential then, let's say, uh, trauma and traumatic events are right. in our uh, physical and emotional lives. Yes. <laughs> I feel it right now. But uh, yes. beyond that, um, perhaps the power that uh, these events have in uh, affecting us and the power, I think, another way of looking at the power that we have to unravel them and understand them. And that's where the healing takes place that yes. we should have hope, which I'm very grateful for uh, in, in your book, not just, certainly not just for me, but um, the urgency. Tell us about the urgency. Yeah. Th there's, there's a linkage there that I think is a very simple common sense linkage, right? So the idea is of, is the book itself. And then of course, there are many, many, many ways to learn about trauma besides the book that I wrote, but the, the book is meant to impart some knowledge and encourage people to seek more knowledge by introspection, by outside sources, right? And then knowledge gives us power, 
right? And, and if it's knowledge about truth, right, it gives us the power to do good, right? And good helps us to heal. Right. And then when we're healing or we see the prospect of healing, that makes us hopeful. And I think that's what creates the urgency. Right. I mean, you're describing a reflective process where you become aware of a trauma in you. Right. And then you, you feel like I want to do something about that. Right. And, and that, that hopefulness, right. Then gives you a sense of urgency. Like I want to do something about this now. Right. Right. And, and like that, that's the, the idea that if we're empowered, right, with knowledge. And again, this is not esoteric academic knowledge, right? I mean, it's like the knowledge in the book is knowledge that I think all of us can, can understand and take in because we can look at it and we can see the common sense of it. We can see the truth of it, right? And then that starts that cascade. We're empowered to do good things, which helps us heal, right? Which gives us hope. And then we feel a sense of urgency, right? I mean, if we see where the world is going, I mean, I think in many ways, it's wonderful that people complimented, oh, that you and the other doctor were, were civil to one another. But it's also so sad, Right, that like that's such an outlier to be like, wow, could, you know, it's this could be a aberration, right? And and I think, you know, is that really what we're choosing? Where two people who disagree and are civil to one another is like some amazing thing? Is that the path we're choosing as a society, right? Or are we choosing a different path that's grounded to to really these common sense? principles. And I, I also write about it. They come from our religious traditions. They come from lessons of history. They come from the basics of science and medicine. They come from kindergarten education, right? Like, are we going to choose these things or are we going to choose something that is that really is based in self-deceit and the gratification of the moment, right? Which doesn't get us anywhere good. You know, we, we have a choice to make. You remember in grade school, the golden rule. How can we forget the golden rule? I mean, that you know, that's, that's, uh, you know, an important tenet. You you can, you know, that's the empathy that uh, is the prefrontal cortex that we segregate ourselves from. Uh, right. It happens to us via trauma, but we impart that on ourselves when we live yes. a pro-inflammatory life as well. Yes. And, you know, we can, we can be intellectual and try to understand why people imparted trauma onto us or caused us to experience traumatic experience, uh, traumatic events based upon what they, what, what, for example, my mother went through at, in her childhood. I understand that. I understand then there's an, you know, why things happened the way they did. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But, uh, you know, there's still that emotional part that uh, if you can just experience it, you know, Wayne Dyer once said that when you're feeling anger or other emotion, stop, and just feel it, experience it. Right. And uh, I, I, I get that. I mean, you know, we want to respond to those feelings immediately. Right. And uh, Deepak Chopra once said that, look, if you smoke cigarettes, I'm not going to tell you not to smoke cigarettes, but the next time you smoke, stop what you're doing, go uh -huh. outside, sit down and connect with that cigarette. So you are present. Right. I think to try to be present yes. with your emotions is is a very powerful tool because the dissociation from the presence is what leads to problems. I wrote about this in, in, yes. in uh, a book that um, you know somebody accosted my wife verbally at a at a Costco in the lineup, and I just about went ballistic. But then I stopped and tried to feel this emotion welling up within me. And I was able to bring the adult back into the room, fortunately, yes. <laughs> with cameras everywhere, right? And yes. um, 
that ability, I think, is is something people are losing, the ability to rein themselves in. And, you know, look right. at the consequences. Look at right. the consequences around, the, in this country even, of just right. uh, unrestrained reactionary uh, behavior. And, you know, right. it, and it, it may well begin with their traumas. And, um, right. you know, I think what your book makes very clear is we got to do our darndest to... Uh, revisit those events and then deal with them, recontextualize them because they are, they're working day and night uh, to be disruptive in our lives. And as you well characterized the very beginning of your book, uh, how, how incredibly pervasive they are in terms of serving to underlie a host of other, not just psychiatric issues, Mm -hmm. uh, but physical issues as well. So yes, really, really good job. And uh, thank you. Thanks so um, much. I always tell people I'm so grateful that they, they wrote their books because, you know, we generally interview people who write books that are very helpful and uh-huh. especially yours. Thank uh, you. And I can tell you that from my heart. Thank you. Uh, I'm very grateful that I read that. So thank you. You're very welcome. I, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, that's the, that's the, the intention of it. Just get us thinking about ourselves and the world around us and entertaining new ways of being, including new ways of being with ourselves in the moment. Right. I mean, there's there's a way this can start inside all of us immediately. And and I think that's why it's not esoteric, right? It's, it's grounded to ways that we can change. You can just stop and think about the emotion in us. Where's it coming from? Right. And I mean, there's so much benefit to be had from that. So many times negative emotion is coming from some place of helplessness or shame inside of us right? The shame coming from trauma. And then we want to hold someone responsible. And sometimes it is aggression outward, but sometimes the person we're angry at and hold responsible is ourselves. And there's the negative self-talk, right? And there's the way that we beat up on ourselves and we inadvertently then just perpetuate our own trauma. And like, we don't have to do that and we can change that and we can change that right now. I'm so grateful for your contribution, um, and I, I know it's going to be helpful for a lot of people. I'm grateful for the time that we that we uh, had today to spend together. So thanks for for being here. You're very welcome. Thank you. It was a thoughtful interview, and I, I so appreciate it. And thank you for having me on. Trauma in our lives is basically a fact of life, and needs to be addressed. We need to contextualize trauma in terms of what it has the potential. Uh, to do to us. And I think uh, Dr. Conti has made that very clear and has empowered us today on the Empowered Neurologist by giving us some really meaningful tools. The book is really quite interesting. I hope you'll uh, take a look at it. Uh, Trauma, the Invisible Epidemic. Again, it's Dr. Paul Conti. I'm Dr. David Perlmutter. Thank you for joining us today. I'll be back soon. Bye for now.